Long History The Southern United States in the 1500s Part 3 A Captive in Florida Hello and welcome to episode 3 of Long History's The Southern United States in the 1500s. This text describes an expedition from the mid-1500s to explore large parts of the southerly states of the US, from Florida to Texas, up to Arkansas, North Carolina and most of the states in between. The expedition was headed by Hernando de Soto, beginning in April 1538. This narrative was initially written in Portuguese by a man known as the Gentleman of Elvis. Here at Long History, we split up source documents into chunks of 10 minutes or so, and with this particular document we've got 25 episodes. So if you haven't already, you've still got time to go back to episode 1 in this series to start from the beginning, and don't forget to subscribe to be informed of the release of the other episodes, where you'll get to hear some of the first ever written European descriptions of these states and the people who lived in them. Now just to summarise what's happened so far, in the previous episode, Hernando de Soto reached Cuba giving some description of what the island was like around half a century after Columbus first visited the island. In this episode, Hernando de Soto finally reaches Florida, and immediately he takes great strides to settle the place. They need help from the local people, and, to their surprise, come across a Spaniard who has spent 12 years stranded in the area. So here we go with the Southern United States in the 1500s Part 3, A Captive in Florida. Chapter 7 how he left Havana and came to Florida, and what other matters took place. Before our departure, the governor deprived Nuno de Tovar of the rank of captain general, and conferred it on a resident of Cuba, Vasco Porcayo de Figueroa, which caused the vessels to be well provisioned, he giving a great many hogs and loads of cassabi bread. That was done because Nuno de Tovar had made love to Doña Isabel's waiting maid, daughter of the governor of Gomera. And though he had lost his place, yet, to return to Soto's favour, for she was with child by him, he took her to wife and went to Florida. Doña Isabel remained, and with her the wife of Don Carlos, of Baltasar de Gallegos, and of Nuno de Tobar. The governor left, as his lieutenant over the island, Juan de Rojas, a Fidalgo of Havana. On Sunday, the 18th day of May in the year 1539, the Atlantado sailed from Havana with a fleet of nine vessels, five of them ships, two caravels, two pinnaces, and he ran seven days with favourable weather. On the 25th of the month, being the festival of Espiritu Santo, the land was seen and Anca cast a league from shore because of the shoals. On Friday, the 30th, the army landed in Florida, two leagues from the town of an Indian chief named Rosita. 213 horses were set on shore to unburden the ships that they should draw the less water. The seamen only remained on board, who, going up every day a little with the tide, the end of eight days brought them near to the town. So soon as the people were come to land, the camp was pitched on the seaside, nigh the bay, which goes up close to the town. Presently, the captain-general, Pasco Porcayo, taking seven horsemen with him, beat up the country half a league about, discovered six Indians, who tried to resist him with arrows, the weapons they are accustomed to use. The horsemen killed two, and the four others escaped, the country being obstructed by bushes and ponds, in which the horses bogged and fell with their riders, of weakness from the voyage. At night the governor, with a hundred men in the pinnaces, came upon a deserted town, for, so soon as the Christians appeared in sight of land, they were decried, and all along the coast many smokes were seen to rise, which the Indians make to warn one another. The next day, Luis de Moscoso, master of the camp, set the men in order. 
The horsemen he put in three squadrons, the vanguard, battalion and rearward, and thus they marched the day and the next, compassing great creeks which run up from the bay. And on the 1st of June, being Trinity Sunday, they arrived at the town of Osita, where the governor tarried. The town was of seven or eight houses, built of timber and covered with palm leaves. The chief's house stood near the beach, upon a very high mountain made by hand for defence. At the other end of the town was a temple, on the top of which perched a wooden fowl with gilded eyes, and within were found some pearls of small value injured by fire, such as the Indians pierce for beads, much esteeming them, and string to wear about the necks and wrists. The governor lodged in the house of the chief, and within Vasco Borcayo and Luis de Moscoso. In other houses, midway in the town, was lodged the chief Castellan, Baltasar de Gallegos, where were set apart the provisions brought in the vessels. The rest of the dwellings with the temple were thrown down, and every mess of three or four soldiers made a cabin, wherein they lodged. The ground was very fenny, and encumbered with dense thickets and high trees. The governor ordered the woods to be felled the distance of a crossbow shot around the place, that the horses might run, and the Christians have the advantage, should the Indians make an attack at night. In the paths, and at proper points, sentinels of foot soldiers were set in couples, who watched by turns. The horsemen, going the rounds, were ready to support them should there be an alarm. The governor made four captains of horsemen and two of footmen. Those of the horse were André de Vasconcelos, Pedro Calderón de Barajos, and the two Cardenosas, his kinsmen, Ariastinoco and Alfonso Romo, also natives of Barajos. Those of the foot were Francisco Maldonado of Salamanca and Juan Rodríguez Lobillo. While we were in this town of Osita, the Indians which Juan de Añasco had taken on that coast and were with the governor as guides and interpreters, through the carelessness of two men who had charge of them, got away one night. For this the governor felt very sorry, as did everyone else, for some excursions had already been made and no Indians could be taken, the country being of very high and thick woods, and in many places marshy. Chapter 8 Of some inroads that were made, and how a Christian was found who had been a long time in the possession of a cacique. From the town of Osita, the governor sent the chief Castellan, Baltasar de Gallegos, into the country, with 40 horsemen and 80 footmen, to procure an Indian if possible. In another direction he also sent, for the same purpose, Captain Juan Rodríguez Lobillo, with 50 infantry. The greater part were of sword and buckler, the remainder were crossbow and gunmen. The command of Lobillo marched over a swampy land, where horses could not travel, and, half a league from camp, came upon some huts near a river. The people in them plunged into the water, nevertheless four women were secured, and twenty warriors who attacked our people so pressed us that we were forced to retire into camp. The Indians are exceedingly ready with their weapons, and so warlike and nimble that they have no fear of footmen, for if these charge them they flee, and when they turn their backs they are presently upon them. They avoid nothing more easily than the flight of an arrow. They never remain quiet, but are continually running, traversing from place to place, so that neither crossbow nor arquebus can be aimed at them. Before a Christian can make a single shot with either, an Indian will discharge three or four arrows, and he seldom misses of his object. Where the arrow meets with no armour, it pierces as deeply as the shaft from a crossbow. Their bows are very perfect. The arrows are made of certain canes like reeds very heavy, and so stiff that one of them, when sharpened, will pass through a target. 
Some are pointed with the bone of a fish, sharp and like a chisel, others with some stone like a point of diamond. Of such the greater number, when they strike upon armour, break at the place the parts are put together. Those of Cain split and will enter a shirt of mail, doing more injury than when armed. Juan Rodriguez Lobillo got back to camp with six men wounded, of whom one died, and he brought with him the four women taken in the huts or cabins. When Baltasar de Gallegos came into the open field, he discovered ten or eleven Indians, among whom was a Christian, naked and sunburnt, his arms tattooed after their manner, and he in no respect differing from them. As soon as the horsemen came in sight, they ran upon the Indians who fled, hiding themselves in a thicket, though not before two or three of them were overtaken and wounded. The Christian, seeing a horseman coming upon him with a lance, began to cry out, Do not kill me, cavalier, I am a Christian. Do not slay these people, they have given me my life. Directly he called to the Indians, putting them out of fear when they left the wood and came to him. The horsemen took up the Christian and Indians behind them on their beasts and, greatly rejoicing, got back to the governor at nightfall. When he and the rest who had remained in camp heard the news, they were no less pleased than the others. Chapter 9. How the Christian came to the land of Florida, who he was, and of what passed at his interview with the governor. The name of the Christian was Juan Ortiz, a native of Seville and of noble parentage. He had been twelve years among the Indians, having gone into the country with Panfilo de Narvaez and returned in the ships to the island of Cuba, where the wife of the governor remained. Whence, by her command, he went back to Florida with some twenty or thirty others in a pinnace, and coming to the port in sight of the town, they saw a cane sticking upright in the ground, with a split in the top holding a letter, which they supposed the governor had left there to give information of himself before marching into the interior. They asked it to be given to them of four or five Indians walking along the beach, who, by signs, bade them come to land for it, which Ortiz and another did, though contrary to the wishes of the others. No sooner had they got on shore when many natives came out of the houses and, drawing near, held them in such way that they could not escape. One, who would have defended himself, they slew on the spot, the other they seized by the hands and took him to accede to their chief. The people in the pinnace, unwilling to land, kept along the coast and returned to Cuba. By command of Osita, Juan Ortiz was bound hand and foot to four stakes and laid upon scaffolding, beneath which a fire was kindled that he might be burned, but a daughter of the chief entreated that he might be spared. Though one Christian, she said, might do no good, certainly he could do no harm, and it would be an honour to have one for a captive. To which the father acceded, directing the injuries to be healed. When Ortiz got well, he was put to watching a temple, that the wolves in the night time might not carry off the dead there, which charge he took in hand, having commended himself to God. One night they snatched away from him the body of a little child, son of a principal man, and, going after them, he threw a dart at the wolf that was escaping, which, feeling itself wounded, let go its hold and went off to die and he returned without knowing what he had done in the dark. In the morning, finding the body of the little boy gone, he became very sober, and Osita, when he heard what had happened, determined he should be killed. But, having sent on the trail, which Ortiz pointed out as that the wolves had made, the body of the child was found, and a little farther on a dead wolf, at which circumstance the chief became well pleased with the Christian, and satisfied with the guard he had kept. 
ever after taking much notice of him. Three years having gone by since he had fallen into the hands of this chief, there came another named Mokoso, living two days' journey distant from that port, and burnt the town. When Osita fled to one he had in another seaport, whereby Ortiz lost his occupation, and with it the favour of his master. The Indians are worshippers of the devil, and it is their custom to make sacrifices of the blood and bodies of their people, or of those of any other they can come by, and they affirm, too, that when he would have them make an offering, he speaks, telling them that he is athirst, and that they must sacrifice to him. The girl who had delivered Ortiz from the fire told him how her father had the mind to sacrifice him the next day, and that he must flee to Mokoso, who she knew would receive him with regard, as she had heard that he had asked for him, and said he would like to see him. And as he knew not the way, she went half a league out of town with him at dark, to put him on the road, returning early so as not to be missed. Juan Ortiz would prove to be a key figure in this expedition, being a vital link between De Soto and the local people. He has spent 12 years living amongst them, having arrived to find out what had happened to Pamphilo de Narvaez's expedition, recounted in another of Long History's series called Florida, Texas and Northern Mexico in the 1500s. Ironically, his search for information about the survivors led to him being stranded and captured himself. Hernando de Soto in the meantime has wasted no time in finding and taking a local village. His men have already found a base and have begun their explorations. In the next episode we will hear the rest of Juan Ortiz's story. De Soto begins his exploration of the Florida area, looking for gold and interacting with the local people. That's it for episode 3 of the Southern United States in the 1500s. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to be notified when other episodes are released. If you can't wait until then, don't forget that we've got plenty to explore on Long History. Documents describing early explorations by Europeans of the Philippines, as well as journeys by Magellan and Columbus. So thanks everyone for listening to part 3 of the southern United States in the 1500s, a captive in Florida. Goodbye.